According to the next two speakers, voter education is needed now more than ever. Mary Beth Witzel Bale is the City of Madison clerk, and Josh Call is a voter litigation attorney from the law firm Perkins Coie. The talk is titled "Election Administration 2016: What Have We Learned?" It took place on September 7, 2016, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison, and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. You can find study materials at the league's website at lwvdanecounty.org. First, we hear from Ingrid Roth, Vice President of LWV Dane County, who introduces the speakers. Mary Beth Witzel Bale is a native of Wisconsin, and this Friday she celebrates her 12th anniversary of working for the City of Madison. She has served as Madison City Clerk for the past 10 years. So, happy anniversary! Because of her expertise on election administration, Mary Beth provided affidavits and testimony in both the ACLU and One Wisconsin Institute federal court cases. Many of us in this room have worked with Mary Beth over the years, and we know how hard she works and how dedicated she is. And when I describe to my LWV colleagues around the state the work that Mary Beth does to further the ability of every eligible voter to cast a ballot and have it counted. My LWV colleagues are astounded and very jealous uh, of those of us here in Madison. So, so Josh is an attorney at Perkins Coie, whose work focuses on voting rights litigation. He's currently involved in cases challenging voting restrictions in North Carolina, Ohio, Virginia, Arizona, and here in Wisconsin. The case in Wisconsin, one Wisconsin Institute v. Thompson. Was tried before Judge James Peterson in May and resulted in the invalidation of several recent changes to Wisconsin election law. The case is currently on appeal. Before joining Perkins Coie and getting involved in voting rights litigation, Josh worked as a federal prosecutor in Baltimore for the firm Jenner and Block, and as a law clerk to then Chief Judge Michael Boudin of the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. He's also a former president of the Stanford Law Review. He grew up in Ashkosh and Fond du Lac, and lives with his wife Lindsay and their son Simon in Madison. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mary Beth Witzel Bale, Madison City Clerk. Thank you. I'm happy to spend the evening with some of my favorite people in the League of Women Voters. So I was asked to speak about what we have learned in 2016. One of the biggest things we've learned is that voter outreach is needed now more than ever. We've been keeping track at the polls of what is being presented as voter ID, and we're seeing a lot of voters who use logic to figure out what the, the, they'll be showing us. At the polls, and uh, they're not acceptable forms of ID.、Uh, we have statistics here of number of IDs that have been presented that are driver licenses or ID cards from other states. It's 36 voters in February, 54 in April, four in August, and of course, as you know, we'll have a lot more voters at the November election. 
and many of them will not have voted in any of those three elections. Voters presenting a student ID card that doesn't meet the state requirements uh, was 18 voters in February, 27 in April, and three voters in August when our student wards had pretty low turnout. In February, we had eight voters present an ID that was too expired for us to be able to use, even with the grace period given for Wisconsin driver licenses and ID cards. The same for 15 voters in April and one voter in August. And then we have voters who have forgotten to bring their ID to the polls. 37 voters in February, 29 in April, and 10 in August. And not everybody uh, decides to cast a provisional ballot or decides to go home to get their ID. Um, a number of these voters just turn away and end up not casting a ballot. And for each election this year, we've had voters who couldn't present an ID because it was lost or it was stolen. Three voters in February, two in April, and three in August. In February, we had five voters who told us that they did not have an ID at all. Another five voters had the same scenario in April and one, of, one voter in August. And then we also have absentee requests that we're unable to fill because the voter sends the request. They do not provide ID with the absentee request. We follow up with the voter and ask them to send us ID and then they either don't respond or they say, never mind, I don't feel comfortable sending in a copy of my ID. Uh, in February, we hadn't kept track of this number and after the election wished that we had. So we started tracking this in April. It was 242 voters in April and 89 voters in August. Another lesson that we've learned this year is that it's very important to connect provisional voters with help, such as the help from the League of Women Voters and from the Dane County Voter ID Coalition to follow up and get their ballot counted. Sometimes that involves a trip to the DMV or just information on what they can do to get their ballot counted. In February, when we had 22% turnout, there were 28 provisional ballots cast. There were 29 voters who said that they would rather not cast a provisional ballot. They could have voted provisionally, but instead they chose not to vote. And only six of our provisional ballots were counted for that election. In April, when we had 66% voter turnout, there were 123 provisional ballots cast in the city of Madison. Another 40 voters declined a provisional ballot. And 41 of our provisional ballots were counted. So that's one-third of the provisionals counted. And a big reason they were counted was that the League of Women Voters and the Dane County Voter ID Coalition helped provide follow-up for these voters. We had contact information available at the polls. We had um, sheets of paper for the poll workers to make a list of anybody who wanted help from the League of Women Voters, and there were voters who followed up on that offer. 
And then in August, when we had 22% turnout, there were 29 provisional ballots cast, 26 additional voters declined casting a provisional ballot, and 10 of our provisional ballots were counted. So we've really appreciated the additional help from the League of Women Voters and the Dane County Voter ID Coalition uh, on our provisional ballot log. We collect contact information right away at the polls so we can follow up with voters who haven't gotten a copy of their ID to the clerk's office by 4 p.m. Friday. And as you all know, uh, the days following the election, uh, we are out picking up supplies from the polling places. There aren't very many people in the clerk's office. So having uh, extra help available from the league has really made a difference for those provisional voters and helped make sure that they're not disenfranchised and discouraged from even trying to vote again. Another thing that we found was helpful for our provisional voters was that when we give them information at the polling place, it says that they can take their ID to any Madison Public Library after Election Day, and the librarians will help them scan the ID and send it to the clerk's office via email. We have found that more than half of the voters who follow up with us to have their provisional ballot counted are doing so with the help of librarians. So they don't have to come downtown to find a parking spot. They don't have to try to figure out a new sort of technology. They get help for free from City of Madison librarians. Another lesson we've learned is that voter registration can be a bigger obstacle than voter ID. And this is something that we've been looking at for quite a few years. In February, we had 89 people who were eligible to vote who went to the polling place expecting to be able to register on Election Day, but they didn't have a form of proof of residence that was acceptable under state law. And in this situation, there is no chance for a provisional ballot. If you can't prove your address on Election Day to register, you can't register, and then you can't cast a ballot. In April, we had 99 voters with the same issue and 22 voters in August. We also have data for the past several years We've been tracking this since 2012. In November 2014, 157 eligible voters in the city of Madison planned to register at the polls on Election Day, but they weren't able to do so. In November 2012, it was 164 eligible voters. In June of 2012, 239 eligible voters. And in May of 2012, 130 eligible voters could not register at the polls. We've also learned with voter ID after the February election that we need at least 11 election officials at every polling place. That's the minimum. Uh, you may recall a few years ago the minimum number of poll workers we'd have at a polling place was five. We thought we would be increasing that to nine with voter ID, but we learned in February that nine simply wasn't sufficient. We had to add additional poll workers. Our goal in Madison is that each voter will be able to get through the line within 15 minutes after the initial rush at 7 a.m. And in order to accomplish that goal, we found that we have to split the poll books 
at each polling place. And we need a third election official on each half of the poll book to check the voter's ID while they're checking in at the poll book. We've been working with UW-Madison to study the lines at the polls and figure out how we can make sure the lines don't get too long in November. And what he's found is that if it takes more than one minute, six seconds to check in at the poll book, then your line is going to quickly increase. Uh, if it's a peak time of day, it will quickly reach two hours or more. So that's why we have to have so many poll workers at the polls to keep the check-in time less than one minute, six seconds. On to plans for the general election. Um, I know this isn't exactly what we've learned, but using what we've learned in 2016, this is what we're planning to do for the general election, thanks to the court case that you'll hear about next that changed a lot of our regulations. First of all, the Madison Common Council passed a resolution not too long ago saying that voter registration is going to be available at all city agencies. So we have been training city staff in each agency to be able to register voters. And the idea is that when you're dealing with a city office, you are likely to have something that you could use as proof of your address anyway. You're dealing with a government document or at the water utility. You're, you have your water bill in your hand, and you're going to pay that bill. So why not register to vote right at that point? And uh, this is a picture of the first person registering to vote at the Madison Water Utility, which is very excited about their new role in registering voters. We now are able to send absentee ballots via email, and that's going to make a huge difference for voters who are temporarily overseas. In past elections, we have had to send them a ballot through the mail, and quite often it wouldn't reach their address overseas in time to get it back to be counted. And now, of course, ballots need to be returned even earlier to be counted. They need to be returned by election day. So this is going to give people a chance to have their ballot counted if they're temporarily overseas. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Election Administration 2016, What Have We Learned? A forum sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Mary Beth Witzel-Bale, who is the City of Madison clerk, and Josh Call, a voter litigation attorney with the law firm Perkins Coie in Madison. We also have expanded hours for in-person absentee voting. This will be the earliest ever we've been able to have in-person absentee voting. And the former restriction that we only have 10 days of absentee voting has been lifted because of the court case you're going to hear about. But in addition to that, the Federal MOVE Act says that we need to have our ballots earlier in the clerk's office than previous years in order to get ballots to military voters and voters who are permanently overseas 47 days before the election. And because of this, we're going to be able to start having in-person absentee voting in the clerk's office September 26th. The hours are going to be 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then we have four Saturdays where we'll be open from 9 to noon. Two Saturdays will be open from 9 to 2. 
And then two Sundays will be open from 1 to 4. So absentee voting in person is going to end the Sunday before Election Day. We also are going to have absentee voting available at all Madison Public Libraries. And initially, this is going to start two weeks before the election. There will be two weeks of absentee voting at the libraries. Last night, the Common Council amended the resolution to say absentee voting at the libraries would start on September 26th. So that's going to be six weeks. The librarians are going to be issuing the absentee ballots, and as you know, they've been registering voters for years and years, and they're very excited about it. They said, this is what we do as librarians, and it really fits with their mission. Uh, there is a section of Madison that doesn't have a library, the northeast corner of Madison, and so Streets East said that they would let us offer absentee voting during the hours that Streets East is open. So that's 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., and that also is going to begin on September 26th for weekdays. Uh, for the libraries, as you know, there are libraries that are open on Sundays. There are libraries that are open until 9 p.m. Uh, each library has its own set of hours. But voting is going to conclude 30 minutes before the library closes. And then the clerk's office is going to retrieve their ballots from that day and help them restock for the following day. We also will have in-person absentee voting on our college campuses, Edgewood College, the final week before the election, Monday through Friday, is going to have a site for absentee voting from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And UW-Madison has given us a location in Union South for that same week, Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. On campus, we also are going to be able to use certified housing lists as proof of address. And so that's going to save a lot of time with the voters in line trying to get a strong enough Wi-Fi signal to bring up their, uh, their MyUW site to prove their address. So this will be very helpful. And UW-Madison is going to set up a station at each of our polling locations that are on campus that are in UW buildings where they are going to be able to issue UW-Madison voter IDs right at the polls. And then the other big thing we have coming up is National Voter Registration Day. Uh, we're very saddened that uh, the state is eliminating special registration deputies, but we'd like to make this National Voter Registration Day our biggest ever while we still are able to make use of the special registration deputy process and really go out with a bang with that. But as special registration deputies are eliminated by the state, uh, we still hope to work closely with the League of Women Voters on voter outreach. Um, voter outreach is going to be needed more than ever because not everybody has access to a computer, not everybody is computer savvy, and there are going to be people who need a lot of help getting registered to vote and working through all the red tape uh, that may be before them and figuring out what the regulations are currently. So we hope to continue working closely with you as voter education ambassadors next year and beyond. 
and uh, also in issuing absentee ballots and the exciting uh, events that we have coming up the next couple of months. So thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Election Administration 2016, What Have We Learned? A forum sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Mary Beth Witzel-Bale, who is the City of Madison Clerk, and Josh Call, a voter litigation attorney with the law firm Perkins Cooey in Madison. Thank you very much. Uh, let me start out by thanking um, the League of Women Voters of Dane County for having me. Um, it's a particular honor to be here uh, with Mary Beth. Um, she didn't say all the great things that she's doing here, so I'm going to take a brief opportunity to say a few of them, since I know about a lot of them firsthand. Um, Madison is really a leader in making uh, in-person absentee voting opportunities available to all of its voters. I call it early voting, by the way, and I once said that in front of Kevin Kennedy, who looked at me very cross-eyed. So I've learned to say in-person absentee voting. Um, But Mary Beth and uh, her staff really took the lead in expanding uh, opportunities into multiple locations, into libraries, as you've heard about, and it served as a model for cities uh, throughout the state. Um, but that's not the only way in which she's been innovating. Um, you heard that she's taking advantage of the opportunity to email or fax ballots overseas to voters who are out of the country and would have trouble getting a ballot back. Um, Madison has taken a, a really scientific approach to preventing long lines from forming. Um, which have been a major problem in uh, large cities throughout the country, uh, but Madison, for the most part, has avoided. Um, and just at the smallest level of detail, I, I actually used to, to vote at this polling location right here at Capitol Lakes, and so I was reminded as I was parking today um, about all the details that go into election administration, like making sure you have an, uh, a location that's accessible for parking. You don't see a lot of headlines in the papers that say election administrators found locations with lots of available parking. Um, But it turns out that that sort of thing actually plays a big role in making voting easier for people or harder. Um, And it's those sorts of nuts and bolts that um, Mary Beth and her staff have done a really fantastic job of putting together in Madison. So I would ask you to join me in a brief round of applause for them. Um, What I want to talk about today primarily is sort of the state of change in Wisconsin elections since the end of 2010. Um, And I'm going to do it through the lens of the case that uh, I worked on here that you've heard a bit about. Um, As of 2010, Wisconsin had, I think, what was widely regarded as one of the leading uh, systems in the country uh, for voting. It had very high turnout. It had very uh, few problems with administration. We have some of the lowest numbers of provisional ballots. Uh, of any state in the country. Um, But at that point in our state's history, uh, there were a number of changes that have been made um, to the the election laws in the state. Um, The the biggest one is one that uh, you're probably familiar with, which is known as Act 23. Um, That act instituted the voter ID law in Wisconsin, uh, but that was actually just one part of a much larger omnibus bill. Uh, That bill also reduced early voting at the time The window had been somewhere between three weeks and 30 days. Uh, That limited early voting initially to a 12-day period. Uh, 
corroboration was eliminated. Um, you saw the statistics that Mary Beth provided about the numbers of people who show up but don't have proof of residency to vote. Uh, what corroboration allowed was for somebody to come in and if they didn't have a document that proved their residence, if they had a friend or a relative who could say, I know where Mary Beth lives, that person could sign under penalty of perjury to, to swear to the, the residence. Uh, that's been eliminated, and one of the effects of that has been sometimes people show up at the polls and they're just unable to prove their residency to register. Um, another change was that uh, dorm lists, which colleges used um, in connection with registration, uh, the requirements for those were, were made more complicated. Basically, the old rule was that a college could send a list of the students at uh, the Witty dorm, for example, and if your name was on the list and you had a student ID, you could register at that address. The, the law was changed so that the colleges had to certify that all the students on the list were citizens. Um, the trick with that is that federal law prohibits colleges from certifying that their students were citizens. So that effectively eliminated um, that method of registration. The residency requirement was increased from 10 to 28 days. Uh, straight ticket voting was eliminated. Uh, and statewide special registration deputies were eliminated. Um, as you'll hear in a minute, uh, all special registration deputies have since been eliminated. But for a period of time, uh, special registration deputies could get a special certification that allowed them to register voters throughout the state. Um, so Act 23 was actually just the first of several changes to election law that took place in a relatively short period in the state's history. Um, Act 75 in 2011 was the bill that prohibited emailing and faxing of absentee ballots to citizens, uh, which you've heard about. Um, Acts 227 and 240, um, 227 prohibited clerks from returning absentee ballots to voters, uh, except if a few certain circumstances were met. So if a voter cast a ballot and it turned out to be a butterfly ballot and they realized they voted for Pat Buchanan, um, they couldn't go back and retrieve their ballot um, as a result of this law. Uh, Act 240 eliminated the requirement that special registration deputies be appointed at most public high schools, uh, I should say all public high schools, and most high schools overall. Um, then following the 2012 election, there was another series of um, election regulations passed in the next legislative session. Um, Act 76 overturned an ordinance that Madison had, which required landlords to provide voter registration applications to uh, tenants. Uh, Act 146 um, further reduced early voting by eliminating weekend and evening early voting. Um, so at, as a result of Act 146, the early voting period at the time was down to a 10-day window. Um, and then in Acts 177 and 182, um, the legislature created a rule that uh, observer areas had to be placed within three to eight feet of where voters check in uh, to register to vote or to announce their presence to vote. Uh, the previous rule had been a six to 12 foot window, so it moved the observers closer uh, to where the voters were stationed. Um, Act 182 is what requires documentary proof of residence to register at any time. So even if it's more than 20 days before the election, um, the system that was previously in place, and is actually still in place, um, when a registration comes in, a card is sent out by mail to confirm that the, the person who registered lives there. 
Um, that still happens, but now regardless of when you register, uh, you're required to provide um, some sort of document that proves where you live. Um, and the last bill I mentioned up there is Senate Bill 91. Uh, that bill was not passed. It was introduced uh, in March of 2013. And that bill would have permitted uh, multiple early voting locations to be opened up uh, in any municipality in the, in the state. At the time, there was a restriction that um, limited early voting to one location per municipality. So in Madison, it had been at the uh, clerk's office in Milwaukee. It was at the municipal building downtown. Um, and other cities had similar setups. So in our lawsuit, we filed in May of last year the cases known as um, One Wisconsin Institute, it's now versus Thompson, uh, who's replaced uh, Judge Nickel uh, as one of the election administrators in the state. Um, and I and several of my colleagues represented uh, One Wisconsin Institute, Citizen Action of Wisconsin, um, and several individual voters um, who were challenging the restrictions that I just mentioned. Um, we brought that case under a variety of theories. Uh, one is that the Constitution prohibits uh, election laws that impose burdens on voters that are uh, weightier than the state interests that they serve. Um, we argued that the laws, some of the laws violated the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and then we argued that the laws were intended to suppress the votes of particular groups of voters, um, in particular minority voters, young voters, uh, and Democratic voters. Um, so a trial was held this past May before Judge Peterson in Madison. Uh, Mary Beth was one of the star witnesses at trial, and she subjected herself to uh, cross-examination. Um, and after the trial, Judge Peterson issued uh, a lengthy order, which I believe was in your reading materials for today. It was over 100 pages, so you'll be excused if you did not get to the end. Um, I don't want to ruin the end for anybody who plans to read ahead, but, um, but in his order, Judge Peterson found that some of the provisions I just mentioned, uh, although not all of them, uh, were unconstitutional. Um, in, in most cases, because he found that the burdens that those provisions imposed on voting rights outweighed the benefits that the provisions served. Um, the issue that I think is the most high profile is the voter ID law, um, which I'm sure you all know about, um, keeping track of the various changes to how it's being implemented and what the rules are for it um, are a bit tricky, to, to say the least. Um, and it was an interesting opinion on that. Judge Peterson found that, and this is in his opinion, uh, the Wisconsin experience demonstrates that a preoccupation with mostly phantom election fraud leads to real incidents of disenfranchisement, which undermine rather than enhance confidence in elections, particularly in minority communities. Uh, to put it bluntly, Wisconsin's strict version of voter ID law is a cure worse than the disease. Um, and what the evidence at the trial showed, among other things, is that as the Wisconsin's voter ID law was being implemented, um, to get an ID, you needed to have certain underlying documents. Uh, often it was a birth certificate, um, but certain other forms of documentation could qualify. And uh, what we were able to show at the trial is that there are some voters who, because they were born uh, with a midwife who delivered them, or because they were born in the Jim Crow South, um, or for any other number of reasons, just don't have those documents. And um, sometimes people would undertake extraordinary efforts um, but simply just were not able to get an ID through the process the state had in place. Um, and so we identified a number of voters, some of whom were plaintiffs in the case, 
um, who were effectively disenfranchised. Um, not just effectively, they could not vote. They could not get an ID uh, that permitted them to vote. And, and so I think that was particularly striking evidence uh, for the judge, particularly when contrasted with the, the absence of cases of in-person um, voter impersonation fraud, which is the purported goal um, of the voter ID laws. And so Judge Peterson found that because of a previous voter ID case in the state, which is known as Frank versus Walker, which is actually still going on as well, um, he was bound not to strike down the law in its entirety, but he ordered that certain changes be made to the law uh, to make it easier for people to get IDs. I mean, actually, as the trial, literally as the trial was going on, um, some of those changes were ones that the state started undertaking voluntarily. Um, I'm using the word voluntarily loosely here, but the, this, the, uh, the state began uh, a policy that it would issue temporary IDs to anybody who came into the process to try to start getting an ID. Um, it's not a, a perfect system to be sure, but, but what it means is that anybody who goes into a DMV now seeking to get an ID and enters into the process that the DMV has, which is known as the ID petition process, will at least get a temporary receipt that can be used for voting in the, in the upcoming election. Um, that issue is still being uh, litigated, as, as you heard at the start, it's on appeal. But for purposes of this upcoming election, I think the rules are pretty well set. And, and so if you know somebody who needs an ID, who doesn't have one, you can take them to the DMV with whatever identity documents they have and with whatever proof of residency documents they have and gather it all up and go in. And even if it's not what is required to get the permanent ID, um, they can at least get a temporary ID that will let them vote um, in the upcoming election. Judge Peterson also ordered that um, outreach be done by the state to educate voters on, uh, on the existence of this process. Um, also, on the eve of trial, the state announced a new plan to uh, spend $250,000 educating voters um, about the voter ID law, which is it's $250,000 better than nothing, um, but it is a lot less than some other states are spending. So our hope is that there will be some additional educational efforts beyond that. Um, you may also have heard about the parallel case uh, in front of Judge Edelman in Milwaukee, which originally granted an, uh, an exception to the voter ID rule that permitted voters to use uh, affidavits to vote, um, but that decision was overturned. So the voter ID law is very much in effect for the upcoming election, um, but it is now somewhat easier to get an ID than it, it had been. Um, with respect to the other provisions that I was, was talking about, um, with one minor exception, Judge Peterson invalidated all of the in-person absentee or early voting restrictions. Um, he actually found that the elimination of weekend and evening voting was specifically designed to suppress voting by um, African-American voters in Milwaukee. Um, and there was a lot of uh, sort of explicit, uh, there were a lot of explicit statements made in the legislative record about how um, it, was, it, was too, it had become too easy to vote in Milwaukee because it was allowing voting on weekends and evenings. And ironically, the quotes you see were, were my constituents see long lines of people waiting to vote in Milwaukee. Um, so the response to those long lines was to reduce the period for it. Um, but Judge Peterson also struck down the other restrictions, um, which has uh, enabled Madison, Milwaukee, and some other cities to expand uh, the early voting opportunities that they offer. Uh, he invalidated the provision that uh, required you to certify citizenship on the dorm lists, so schools once again can use dorm lists to register voters. 
Um, he invalidated the change to the residency requirement, so that's now 10 days again. He invalidated the restriction on faxing and emailing ballots, um, so Mary Beth and her colleagues can do that once again. And he made uh, a change to one of the requirements for student IDs that are used for voting. They're frankly still very difficult to use, um, and I'm really glad that Madison is offering them at polling places, but they're not quite as difficult to meet the criteria as, as it used to be. Um, on the other hand, there are still several provisions that are in place that I've been going through in this PowerPoint. Um, corroboration is still eliminated. Street ticket voting is still not available. Um, statewide and mandatory high schools special registration deputies are no longer required um, or available. Um, clerks still can't return absentee ballots. Madison still can't require landlords to give voter registration forms uh, to tenants. The observer rules are still in effect, and the documentary proof of residence requirement is still in effect. Um, and actually, since, we, since the time we filed this case in May of last year, there have been a few other changes um, to the election laws, including um, one positive change, which is the institution of online voter registration, which allows voters to sign up to vote online. The drawback to that bill is that it also instituted new restrictions, including the elimination of special registration deputies, um, it moved the absentee ballot receipt deadline forward, so it's now they now have to be received on election day rather than postmarked on election day, so get your absentee ballots in early this year. Um, and it required an extra signature, I believe, by the witness, um, or else the clerks are not able to count the ballots unless the witness is signed properly. I'm sure Mary Beth will correct me if I got the detail wrong on that. Um, so having gone over all that back and forth on the election laws, um, one of the reasons that I was excited to talk to the League of Women Voters of Dane County tonight is um, because you all play a, such a critical role in um, getting out word about the election rules and educating voters, informing voters about what the rules are. And any, any election lawyer, not to mention any reasonable voter, um, is sure to be confused about what the rules exactly are given uh, the vast majority of changes over the last uh, six years. Um, our hope is that in making the, the rules easier and making voting more accessible, that any confusion sort of works in the voters' favor. But obviously, you know, it's two steps forward and one step back with a lot of these changes. Um, so, um, so while the educational work that you all do is vital to our democratic process in any election, um, I think it's especially important uh, in the upcoming election, given um, a lot of the confusion and the first, the fact that it's going to be the first presidential election in which the voter ID law um, is in effect. I guess a couple of sort of final thoughts on this. One thing that, that is really helpful um, and I, that I think is going to help people overcome confusion is the expanded early voting period. If you don't have, an, if you don't have the right ID and you go to vote early, uh, Mary Beth and her staff can tell you you don't have the right ID. Um, it's, it's, as she said, it's amazing how much confusion you see, for example, about what IDs are permissible for voting. The, you know, one of the famous talking points about voter ID laws is that you need a, an ID to board an airplane, so why don't you need an ID to vote? Um, and you'll see voters who say, I use my ID to board an airplane. It's a Minnesota ID, but they won't let me use it to vote in Wisconsin. Uh, so I thought I had an ID that worked. Um, and so, so education is needed, but getting people out to the polls early um, can help people work through those problems. Um, so I, I highly recommend that folks encourage that. As Mary Beth mentioned, this is the last election in which 
special registration deputies are uh, in, in place in Wisconsin. So if you have special deputy, special registration deputy uh, juices flowing, this is the year to use them because it's, it's going to be gone after this until the law gets put back in place. But that's, I think, probably further out. Um, so uh, again, let me just say thank you for having me, and thank you all for all the work you do. It really um, is what takes these uh, successes that we have and makes them uh, effective and actually makes them make a difference for voters um, in getting the poll and getting out to vote. So thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. You are listening to Election Administration 2016, What Have We Learned? A forum sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers are Mary Beth Witzel-Bale, who is the City of Madison clerk, and Josh Call a voter litigation attorney with the law firm Perkins Cooey. Now, a discussion with the audience. The things he has said or found, do they apply statewide or just in the Western District? Uh, the answer is that it, it was a decision from the Western District, uh, but it, it applies statewide. Um, as a federal judge, he has authority to issue uh, orders that are as broad as appropriate, and it's a state law, and so the order, the order does apply to the full state. Hi, I understand that the special registration deputies are allowed till they actually have an operational online system for registering. Now, really, is that practically going to be by January or two years from now? We've been told by the state that it will be running in January, and that's all we have to go on right now. And I, I will add, I, I believe, I haven't looked at the bill in a while, but I believe there's a legislative mandate that it be in place no later than a date certain, which I think is the spring of 2017. Um, now, what happens if it's, not read, you know, if it's not ready at that point, I'm not sure. But, um, but I think given that mandate, the goal at least has to be to get it done by that time. Yeah, referring to the uh, prohibition on straight ticket voting, was any rationale offered for that? The, the primary rationale is that um, that was offered was is that uh, voters should be sufficiently informed that they vote um, that they know who they're voting for and that they they vote for the candidates rather than for the party. Um, that, that was the rationale offered. Our argument was that uh, the real reason that it was passed is first of all that it makes the voting process longer and so increases lines, um, and secondly because um, there. Are some voters have a lot more trouble reading and with literacy than other voters, and so it, it makes the overall process more confusing and has the effect of disenfranchising people. I have two questions about early voting. One, can anybody in any, who lives anywhere in the city of Madison vote at any of the early voting sites, including the campus sites? And number yes. two, will there be at all the sites, will there be an auto mark, a ballot marking terminal, for people with special needs? We will try to get an auto mark at each location. Uh, we're still working out all the logistics of what we're going to be bringing to each site. Uh, so part of it's going to depend on how much space is available at the library. Uh, I know the Monroe Street Library has a lot less space than the other libraries. So there might not be space for an auto mark at the Monroe Street Library but we'll try to get the auto marks to places where there is room for one. Could you give us a little 
preview of what happens next with your with the appeal, not your strategy, but I mean, it's been hard for me to figure out what comes next and on what proximate timeline. Sure. Um, so I'll give you a bit of background, which is maybe more than you were bargaining for. But um, in the last five or six years, I would say, um, and especially since 2013, um, there have been a number of changes to election laws in states throughout the country that have made it more difficult to vote, um, which within the last 50 or so years is a real departure from um, what had been a general tradition of, of expanding voting opportunities in the country. And what has happened as a result of that is that there's been an, ups, an uptick in litigation related to voting laws. And two, two years ago, before the 2014 election, there were a number of cases that were decided uh, very close in time to the election date. And the Supreme Court in four major cases across the country, in each case basically said, we're not going to let that go into, the recent decision go into effect. Um, we're basically gonna say the status quo, you know, within a reasonable period of time of the election needs to stay in place. They didn't say this, but everybody's interpretation is that they wanted to avoid sort of confusing voters by having the rules change at the last minute. So what's happened is that this year, uh, sort of in response to that, myself and other lawyers who do what I do um, tried to get these cases resolved earlier in the process. And the judges have been conscious of that too. Um, Judge Peterson made very clear that he wanted to get a decision out before uh, August so that there would be time for this process to play out. Um, so what's happened in that case is we, he did issue a decision, uh, I believe right at the end of July, the, the state uh, of Wisconsin moved to stay the part of the order that was striking down these provisions that I mentioned. Um, we, on the other hand, moved for an expedited review to try to invalidate the other provisions that were challenging. And what the Seventh Circuit essentially has done is it denied the request that the provisions be stayed. So the parts that we were successful on before Judge Peterson, those changes will be in effect for this upcoming election. On the other hand, the court did not grant our request for an expedited review process of the, the parts of the case that we were not successful on. So what that means is, first of all, it looks like, barring some, something unforeseen, the election rules in the state are pretty well set through the election. Uh, and, and what that means is the appellate process will play out in sort of the way it normally does. Um, the court systems are not famously fast, for any of you who've dealt with them. With the election law cases, they've had to be because of the you have, a, you have a definite endpoint, the election date. Um, but what that means is it'll be a more traditional appeals process. The state's opening appellate brief will be filed next week, actually, um, and then our response is due a month later. Um, and eventually the, the case will be argued probably, probably early next year. Um, so the final resolution of the case will, is still um, several months out. Um, but, but essentially the state is challenging the aspects that it lost and we're challenging the aspects that we lost with, with some qualifications. The Edelman case is that this is the case in Milwaukee that uh, is focused on just voter ID. That case is on a roughly parallel track. Um, so they will likely get decided around the same time, although that remains to be seen. Um, as people who do voter education, we really rely on the, um, the publications that your office puts out. And I, I went in recently to try to get the updated ones that have the new rules, and I was told you didn't have them. 
I know you guys have been really busy. Are you planning to have them for those of us who actually pay attention to those revision dates so that we yes. could get them? And yes, when? I'm working on the new versions to send to the printer. So hopefully next week we'll have new versions available. Are we able to get sample ballots to, to educate the community with? Absolutely. And you can stop by our office to get a sample ballot. We don't have the ballots on cardstock yet, but we have a PDF of all the ballots. Or if you send me an email message about where you're going to be doing voter outreach, I could send you a sample ballot for that area of Madison. Okay. Thank you. Some of us do absentee ballots sometimes, and sometimes we do in-person ballots. So I remember back, I think it was 2010, that we had voter ID in effect, and we submitted our IDs with our absentee ballots. And at that time, I was under the understanding that you kept those permanently. But I did take a chance this last time I did an absentee ballot in April. I sent the ID again, just to be certain. Could you comment, are we going to have to do it every time, and if we go back and forth in our processes, how that works? The way the state law is set up is that once we have your ID on file in the clerk's office, you don't need to send us another ID until you register at a new address, even though the address on your ID does not matter uh, for purposes of proving your identity. But Mary Beth, I'd like to just point out, you told me that I had sent mine in with my ballot because in February I didn't send it with my application um, in 2012. And so because I hadn't sent it with my application and it went with the ballot, it actually didn't get retained in your office. It's only if you send it with the application at that time. They've changed the rules on, oh. <laughs> on okay. the IDs so that now in order for us to send you a ballot we need to have your ID on file first. And so there will be no more sending in IDs with ballots, which is going to be a lot easier to administer at the polls. There won't be um, requirements that the poll workers look for a copy of somebody's ID and then try to keep that in a safe place so it's not left behind at the polling place. have a feel for what changes would need to be made either in the law or by the courts. Uh, to so that UW Madison will be willing to make some other changes to to have a ID a standard WIS card that would be compliant. For instance, if the judge would order that it had to have an expiration date on the card itself of five years, would that be sufficient for UW Madison to agree to change their standard WIS card? One of the issues with the UW-Madison WIS card is that there's no student signature on the card, and UW-Madison has said that they absolutely won't put a signature on their student ID cards because they feel that somehow makes it uh, more likely that uh, somebody might be a victim of identity theft. And uh, I think that's the real sticking point with the uh, UW-IDs. There have been a, a few different issues, one of which we were able to eliminate, but, but several remain. Um, one issue had been that students have expired IDs, and that, that part of the requirement the judge invalidated. So, so students can use expired IDs, and the reason that he made that ruling is because your students are also required to bring 
proof of enrollment. So you, they are, they're already proving that they are um, valid students. Now, the, the purpose of the ID law is to identify voters. So whether or not you are still a student has really no bearing on whether you are the person in the picture that you're showing. Um, so to some extent, it's, um, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. Um, you know, the, the IDs can't be expired for, the, the IDs have to have an expiration date within two years of when they're issued. Well, most college programs are four-year programs, sometimes longer, um, so not many colleges met that requirement. Uh, there needs to be a signature. Um, and so, you know, ultimately what the hope is that there will be a legislative solution to this if the voter ID law is going to remain in place. But, but to answer your question more directly, I think the two big pieces that are problematic still are, number one, the requirement that IDs have a two-year um, expiration period, which a lot of colleges, including Wisconsin-Madison, uh, Wisconsin don't meet, um, and the signature requirement. My question is probably inappropriate, but oh well. <laughs> I live in Monona, and I live in an independent adult living situation. We have a really good city clerk. She, however, came to, with her absentee ballots and her deputy registrars before anybody knew anything more than the names of the people who were running for, in the Democratic primary for 47th Assembly. Now, so all these sheep, these old sheep, go down and they vote, but they don't have a clue because we don't have any information on these three Democrats that are running in the, in the primary. Is there a way, I mean, I would go right out there and campaign my little head off to get more information. And we, we just voted way too early. I think this is a good chance to mention that the League of Women Voters puts together a great publication called Candidates Answers. And that's a great resource to turn to. But Mary Beth, I think the issue is, um, like, we've been contacted by assisted living facilities where the clerks go and the clerks go before our our publication is published. And so they, because we don't publish until like three weeks before the election, but the clerks start that early vote. I don't know what the, you have a special name for it, special? Special voting deputies. Yes. And so that's what, that's what um, Helen is talking yes. about. The clerks have to go to each facility twice. So you probably saw the clerk on the first visit. And the reason the first visit usually is so early is that if somebody needs to register to vote, they only have that opportunity during open registration. So they need to go more than 20 days before the election. But you could tell the special voting deputies on that first visit, I'm not ready to vote yet, come find me on the second visit, and that would be held at a later date. Could you tell me which third-party third candidates are going to be on the ballot? I'd probably get it wrong off the top of my head. Uh, the League of Women Voters probably could answer that better than me. I've been just updating um, forms and instructions for at the polls and haven't really looked at the ballot that closely yet. Yeah, our, our online version should be up before early voting starts, but we're not really planning. There's, I don't know, 12 referenda or something, so we're, we're not really planning to be ready until you start early voting. 
I would just make a comment. I really want to commend the lawyer, Josh from Colin Perkins and his law firm. It really is um, special that this law firm and this articulate attorney would put in the hundreds, if not thousands of hours that it takes to put a case like this together to select and find and prepare these capable witnesses, as Mary Beth made it clear she is. But this doesn't just happen. Lawyers like Josh are just not out there for the taking, and we really owe a lot of gratitude that this firm and this lawyer will allocate their time to a lawsuit of this magnitude that impacts on not just hundreds of people, but millions of people. And I really thank you and your firm. I would like to say I was very impressed, and I only viewed the trial for a little while, but I think there were at least three partners from the coast uh, as part of your team, right, Josh? They were, yes, they were giving me very careful instruction. Uh, no, geez, um, no I, I thank you very much for the comments. That was, that was very nice of you. We are very fortunate in Wisconsin to have some really dedicated um, election officials and uh, people who are in groups like the League of Women Voters, Andrea Kaminsky, who's the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, uh, also testified at trial. And uh, people with that sort of knowledge about what happens in real day-to-day -day interactions and why laws that seem that can be seemingly fairly innocuous can actually be burdensome on voters in real life. Uh, a little bit off topic perhaps, but could you talk a little bit about the process that we will have to go through to get back to that system or a system similar to it that we had before this all started in 2010? Based on the comments earlier in the program that we had one of the best programs. What is it going to take to get back to that? Um, well, our appeal is still pending, so I'm, oh. hopeful, <laughs> I'm hopeful that that will be uh, part of the solution. Um, but partly, you know, it, there's, there's, a, there's a need for legislative uh, change that addresses some of these provisions that repeals some of the more restrictive measures, but, but I think more importantly that focuses on expanding access and that updates um, our system in a way that uh, works with technology. Online voter registration was a good step, but um, again, as I mentioned before, that was a good one step forward, two steps back uh, example. Um, but I will say the one thing I am very excited about, there's one big step forward from our case rather than just moving things back to the way they were, which is um, the expanded uh, early voting locations. The, the one location rule had been in effect, I'm sorry, um, when early voting was first passed. And I think the reason for that is that nobody knew about a decade ago that there was going to be this explosion, not just in Wisconsin, but nationwide in the use of um, voting before Election Day. But it's now become a huge part of voting throughout the country. Um, and so one of the things that is a, an actual step forward as a result of the case rather than remedying something that was taken away from voters um, is the multiple locations. So to some extent, uh, you know, hopefully there's some change in attitude in the legislature uh, in favor of expanded access to voting. 
Um, but, but we'll see. The, nationwide, there has been a noticeable shift um, in the outcomes of these voting cases in the last year, essentially. So courts are taking a more skeptical look at um, some of the justifications that have been provided for laws. Uh, so, you know, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we're turning a corner, but, but I, I think we will see over the next uh, few years how, how things are going to shake out. I have a question about just the difficulty of getting to a DMV, um, not only for local people here who, by definition, if they don't have a driver's license, they don't drive, but it's even worse in rural areas where the DMV isn't even open every day. And I just wondered if you, either one or both of you would like to comment on that. Um, I, I, I will make a few comments. I, I think that's a real issue. It's one of the problems that um, we think remains with, with the solution that's in effect. You know, I will editorialize briefly and say the system that's currently in place is, is this such that if you go to the DMV, you are automatically given this temporary receipt even if you walk in with no documents. And while that's an improvement because it means that people aren't going, you know, at least now have some option to be able to vote, it's really just not credible that you have the system where if people are willing to make the extra effort to drive to the DMV without any documentation at all, they can be given an ID. It's not credible that that's a means of deterring impersonation fraud. In fact, it's maybe a means of encouraging it because you're giving somebody a, a fake ID when, you know, potential to get a fake ID when they walk in. And so, you know, so those, those are live issues that remain um, at issue in our case. But um, my hope is, and this is one of the reasons I love talking to folks like you, is that community resources through groups like the League of Women Voters and other groups that do outreach and get out the vote can help connect people who do need IDs with rides or with other means of getting there. It's, it's not a perfect solution by any means, um, but it's, it's what we're going to have to work with in this election. I'd, I'd just like to point out that I have done a little bit of research on that, Fran, and the DMVs are open in each county at least two days a week now as a result of this. So I'm not saying that's great. You know, if you have a job that doesn't give you a lot of flexibility, maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays don't really work well for you, but they have, as a result of this, um, made made an effort to at least be open two days a week. The other thing I was going to say is that if you're dealing with uh, friends or relatives in other counties, they might try RSVP for rides because we have worked with RSVP in Dane County to get seniors who do not have transportation the ability to get to the DMV. And RSVP is very cautious about doing anything that might be considered partisan. But we have convinced them that getting the ability to register to vote is not a partisan activity. So if you're, if you're dealing with a friend who does not have transportation in another part of the state, I offer that as a resource. In as much as this applies statewide, um, in North Carolina right now, the, uh, a number of the counties, especially in the northern tier, are racing to reinstate uh, limitations that were taken away from the state by the federal courts. Is any of that occurring in Wisconsin? I, I have, we have not seen any Is of that. Is that so politically touchy that neither? No, no, no. I, I, Mary Beth may know the details better than I do, frankly. And I, one of the cases I'm involved with uh, is in North Carolina. So I'm, 
I'm very familiar with what with what's going on there. Um, North Carolina's system of um, election administration is uh, intentionally very partisan. And what, what I mean by that is that there are, in every county, two county board of election members who are um, appointed by the governor's party and then one who's appointed by the other major party. And so um, there, there has been a very hotly contested partisan fight over voting access uh, in North Carolina. Um, in Wisconsin, fortunately, uh, there is not a similar dynamic. The, the clerks are... Um, locally. Locally. That's right. The county clerks are, uh, are elected and partisan. But the local clerks who are the ones who, for the most part, do the nuts and bolts work, um, including setting early voting hours. And for the most part, they're nonpartisan, and they, they tend to have a much greater focus on trying to ensure voter access. Um, we're fortunate to have Mary Beth in, uh, in Madison and in Milwaukee. Um, Neil Albrecht has also been very good. Um, and those are the two cities that have had by far the most, uh, ch- that had the most challenges under the system of increasingly restricted early voting hours because they're their populations are so large and they were limited to one location. Um, North Carolina, by contrast, had allowed, some places had, some counties had as many as 20 locations. And now what they're doing is they're saying, maybe we'll just have one. Um, so it's, it's been a different dynamic there. And I, I haven't seen anything similar here. Um, and I'm, I'm optimistic that we, we won't. Just let me make certain I understand it. If you do absentee and you've already submitted your voter ID, that stays there. But if you go to the poll, every time you go, you have to show your voter ID. Is that correct? That's right. And every time you vote absentee in person, you are showing your ID, even if the clerk has your ID on file. Uh, I'm wondering to what extent these different kinds of restrictions you've analyzed were derived from the voting restriction models created by ALEC, uh, ALEC. Um, it, It... I think it varies by provision. Um, there's obviously been a proliferation of voter ID laws um, throughout the country. Uh, there's been a reduction in early voting in a lot of places. Um, and I, I don't know whether that's related to uh, the organization you mentioned or not. Um, I will say that politicians tend to be very well aware of what uh, what allows people to get to the polls and what doesn't. They are. Uh, to borrow a phrase from Kevin Kennedy, they are, they are all experts in election law because that's part of their job. And um, so what, what is impactful, it tends to vary by state. And so as a point of sort of drastic comparison to our system in Wisconsin, in Arizona, uh, about, eight, I forget the exact number, but I think it's something like 70 or 80 percent of people vote by absentee ballot because it's a really big state with a small population and getting to in-person locations is tough, and they've figured out a way to make it convenient to send in a, a ballot. And one of the ways that people voted, because mail access can be tough in Arizona, is uh, groups would go around, groups, some groups like the League of Women Voters, some partisan groups, um, would go around and collect ballots and deliver them. And there are no documented cases of fraud, uh, but the legislature in Arizona eliminated that form of ballot collection um, and so well, that's one of the issues that I'm, I'm litigating in Arizona. And the reason, you know, the, our argument is that it just was meant to make it harder to vote. 
we don't have anything comparable here because it's a totally different system. Um, so what you see throughout the country is actually really different election systems state by state. Um, but there are some commonalities, uh, and, and what we've seen a lot of recently are, are restrictions. Which states currently do not have voter ID laws? And, and I'll follow up on that. If there are such jurisdictions, has there been an explosion of voter fraud in them? Uh, to take your questions in reverse order, there has there's not been an explosion of, of in-person voter fraud. There, there have been lots of, I shouldn't say lots of, there have been a few sort of broad-based national studies that have found uh, a handful of, of cases of impersonation fraud uh, at the most. Um, the there are, I think it's now a majority of states have some sort of identification requirement. There are fewer than 10 that have what we call strict photo ID laws, which are laws that, number one, require you to present an ID that has a photograph, and number two, um, require that, uh, don't, don't give you any alternative to presenting the ID. So in some states, you can, if you don't have an ID, you can sign an affidavit, for example, uh, which is what Judge Edelman had ordered. Um, Wisconsin is one in the, in the category of most restrictive laws. Um, and not only is it in the category, I actually, there was one state that was arguably as restrictive, which was Texas. Um, the Texas law has been invalidated now, so um, I don't think there's any other state that has a combination that is as strict as Wisconsin's. It requires an ID if you vote by mail absentee, um, which is, there are very few places uh, that, that do that. Um, there are relatively limited numbers of IDs, and until very recently, it, it was very difficult to get an ID if you didn't have the required underlying documents. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, that the Wisconsin law has been so hotly contested in the courts. It's, you know, there, there are other states that have um, compromised uh, and sort of more middle ground positions, and there's been less of this sort of thing. In addition to early voting at the libraries and the campus, Will there also be registration going right up until, say, the Friday before the election? Yes, there will be the Friday before the election day. Does that seem like that's implicit in Judge Peterson's decision? Is that how the city attorney determined that? That's the advice we received from our city attorney, that they're extensions of the city clerk's office. So I've heard a lot of great things about the League of Women Voters and what we're doing to help and to educate people. And I would just like to remind people at home that you can donate to us to help what we do. We incur a lot of printing expenses and office expenses that help us to do a good job. And you can go to our website at lwvdanecounty.org. And thank you. Either one of you can answer this question. Is there a movement to, to get a national uh, uniform voter registration? If not, how do we get that going? Um, I, I am not aware of any. I, I will say that one of the, uh, this reminds me of the, the earlier question about whether there's similarity across the states in the different laws that have been passed. The states have very different systems, um, and the, there's a long history of states regulating their elections in the way that they, they choose to, and it, and it varies widely from state to state. Um, so part of the, I think the biggest challenge would be to convince 
the various states throughout the country to sort of join forces in, in that effort. Um, I will say that Wisconsin, um, this, is, this is not quite what you're talking about, but Wisconsin recently entered into a group called ERIC, and I will let um, Mary Beth remind me of what that acronym stands for, if she can think of it. But it's, a, it's an interstate consortium that, uh, that is meant to um, help catch any uh, multiple state voting, but it's also meant to encourage voter registration across the states. And to join, you need to do certain things to encourage registration. It, it certainly doesn't uh, create a registration that's good for all time across all states, but, um, but that, that's the sort of thing I've seen. I haven't seen anything uh, as ambitious as, as your suggestion. We really need to thank Mary Beth and Josh for all the work they do. You've been listening to Election Administration 2016, What Have We Learned? A forum sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The speakers were Mary Beth Witzel-Bale, who is the City of Madison clerk, and Josh Call, a voter litigation attorney with the law firm Perkins Cooley in Madison. The talk took place on September 7, 2016, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. You can find study materials at the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.